Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and I can barely contain my excitement for this one. It is truly an honour and a pleasure to welcome Chuck Richardson and his co-author Emily Wilson onto the podcast. Now, Chuck was a radio operator, uh, a gunner and a trained medic on B-17s during the Second World War. He was engaged in the precision bombing campaign of the 8th Air Force. Specifically, he was in the 390th Bomb Group and he was based in Norfolk. He's just written an amazing new book. 35 Missions to Hell and Back, A Mighty Eighth Air Force History. And it is a truly, truly amazing book. A penned first-hand account from a veteran who served in that period that is dedicated in memory to all the brave people who served with him on the good old Yank, the name of his plane, and, of course, all of those who served their country with bravery and courage during the Second World War war. I don't want to give too much away in this episode. We go through so much, what it was like to live in the UK during the bombing by the Luftwaffe, some of the near escapes from V1s and V2s that Chuck had during the Blitz, all the way through to some of his most dangerous missions. What I would say is one of the worst missions I've actually ever heard in the history of the Second World War, and as long as I've been doing this podcast. I mean, a sneak peek here, but well, the plane had 600 holes in it. Let's just say that. So here is Chuck Richardson and Emily Wilson on Chuck's 35 missions to hell and back. Chuck, Emily, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. It is an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you here. How are you both doing today? Very well, thank you. Very well, thanks. Now, it's uh, it's great to hear you're both doing well. Where are you speaking to us from in the world? From Charlotte, North Carolina. Wonderful. Now, Chuck, I came across your book, 35 Missions to Hell and Back, a first-hand history of the mighty 8th Air Force, 390th Bomb Group H. And I could not wait to speak to you and to Emily, who helped you write the book. So, let's start from the start. 
the start of your war. What made you join the US Army Air Service? For some, it's a calling to fly, and for others, it's simply where you get told to go. What was it for you? Actually, right out of high school, I was drafted into the service. And uh, after testing me for uh, abilities, uh, they thought I might be a good fit for the Air Force. And at that time, there was a need for a lot of heavy bomber crews. And so that's the direction that they sent me. And I got training at the beaches of Southern Florida and was transferred from there to radio school in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where it was very, very cold. So it seems like most of my career in the Air Force was going from hot to cold and vice versa. It ended up uh, as I left the United States and flew our plane overseas. We left from Goose Bay at Labrador, where I thought little trees that we saw flying in were were beautiful. But uh, when we landed, uh, it was only the tops of those trees that we were seeing. It was all snow. Uh, the snow was 15, 20 feet deep. And uh, we didn't we didn't see the sky again until we left about a week later. Everything was done underneath the snow. And each day when it snowed, they would just add another pipe to the top of the, to the stove uh, through the roof. Oh, wow. What was it like landing in that sort of snow? They had uh, gymnasiums in under the snow and the only light we got was from the uh, little tiny windows near the top of the gymnasium. Uh, the rest was all snow and tunnels from one building to the other. We didn't even go outside. Oh, wow. So did you fly into Labrador? Did you have to land in that snow? Yes, we had been given our airplane to fly overseas and told it would be our plane, which was not true. And the pilot had been told that he could, he had been told if he wanted scotch, he had better buy it in the United States and carry it with him. So he put a case in each wing. <laughs> when we flew to Scotland, they came in while we were asleep and told us we put on a train and our pilot said, where's our airplane? They said, well, it's gone to a place where they're going to do some improvements on it. So all of his scotch that he bought uh, was gone with the plane, and he was one unhappy man. <laughs> I, I bet he was one unhappy man. The poor guy had travelled that across the Atlantic, and then he got his scotch stolen. But to be fair, if there's one place you want to lose your scotch, it's Scotland, right? Because you can easily replace it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we found out. It had been a whole lot cheaper just to wait to get, get his whatever he wanted when he wanted it. Yeah, literally. Now, if you take us back a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about your training and the role you were trained for? Sure. I was took basic training at Miami Beach, and uh, after a lot of testing, they thought I would be fit for air crew and uh, my talents were towards uh, radio. So they sent me to radio school. Uh, they sent me to Scottfield, Illinois. And when we got there uh, in the middle of the night, they unhooked the engine from the rest of the train. And uh, we sat there freezing cold until the next morning. And uh, they said there'd been some confusion and they couldn't take us there. And so they put us back on the train 
since the Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which I spent 22 weeks in training, radio training. And uh, uh, it was very thorough. For graduation, they would bring in a box full of parts for radio and they say, now build us a receiver or a transmitter, blindfolded. You had to build a radio from scratch, blindfolded. I had all the parts in the box, which I could do by feel, but I put them together and it didn't work and I was mortified. So the instructor said, one moment, and he picked the, picked the thing up and slammed it down on the table and started playing a local station. That must have been one hell of a relief, Chuck. They said, send in the next man. <laughs> I mean, that is wiping sweat off the brow moment, isn't it? <laughs> yes, and uh, went from there to um, Dalhart, Texas, where we were assembled into crews. And uh, the, we spent some, some time, a great deal of time there and, and finished up our training and flew from there to flew overseas in the new plane and uh, landed in uh, Iceland. There was a storm coming in Iceland. So when we got there, they uh, had us put a hundred sandbags on each wing and anchored our plane down. And we had to wait out the storm uh, and we could see the plane and it was, it was like wings on a, on a bird. It was beginning to flap and we lost some of the sandbags and when the storm passed and the sun came out they told us that we no longer needed the de-icers on the edge front edge of the of the wings so we had to take the crew members had to take the de-icers off it's a rubber boot that went the entire length of the front edge of the and had thousands and thousands of screws. And we had to take hand screwdriver and undo each screw. And they said, be sure and save the screws because you got to put them back. So we got got those all off. Uh, but I was wondering why they didn't know that before we left the States. But we gained a good bit of weight but actually lost some weight because of it. And it made it easier for us to fly. I mean, that, that storm in Iceland, it must have been something. I was there a couple of weeks ago and a storm set in. And I mean, that bit blows you off your feet, doesn't it? And you must have landed, I guess, over at a Keflavik Air Base. Reykjavik. It's on the southern coast. Reykjavik. Ah, uh, you, land, you landed in Reykjavik City Airport, did you? Yeah, down in the centre. Yeah. Well, we, we, we were flying alone and in bad weather and our navigator said okay pilot let down if this isn't it i don't know where we are and when 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 we came out of the overcast and and there was iceland and there was Reykjavik right in front of us amazing amazing they didn't have any equipment like they got today they were it was all uh, uh, done with the, the tools of the trade back then uh, shooting stars and that sort of stuff. I don't know how they do it, but it was amazing to us. A pretty much a small fishing community still during that period. And it was actually the the war that kind of helped industrialize and, and globalize Iceland as a, as a country, as well as make it rich, because the fishing fleets, I mean, they their demand went through the roof to try and feed 
the people of Britain and um, and of course uh, your your good self when you were posted over in in the UK. So the war transformed Iceland. Interestingly, now your aircraft was the well, it was the B seventeen G, wasn't it? The Flying Fortress. When was the first time you went up in a B seventeen? Actually, it was a B seventeen F. A B seventeen F. Okay. Yeah, and uh, the changes that they made in the F to the G primarily was chin turret on the very front of the plane. Okay. And uh, they took away the 50 caliber machine gun in the radio compartment, which was my gun. Uh, I flew part of my missions with that gun, and then when when they uh, sent in new planes, we got one that did not have uh, a gun in it in the radio compartment. So we picked up a little weight loss and gained a little in the front. But uh, the Germans quick, so quick to find a way to get to you. Uh, the pilots, or the fighter pilots, they kept probing until they found a way. And uh, when, I, when I came along, the way that they found was the best was line up from 10 to 20 uh, fighter planes and meet you head on and try to kill the pilots, our pilots. And the closing time was twice what it would be from attacking from the rear. Uh, so they could come in pretty quickly from the front. But they, the Germans tried all sorts of uh, ways to to, uh, to to knock down the 17s. They uh, put a bomber way above you and lowered a, a bomb by on a cable down into our formations. That didn't. That didn't work. Of course, all of that was done away with when the P-51s were able to fly the complete mission with us. But before uh, they could, uh, our pilots, uh, escort pilots, could only go partially to the target. They'd have to turn around and go back. And once they left, then the Germans would would, uh, begin to attack us. But uh, they had planes with rockets on them uh, it would sit out to one side of our formation out of range of our guns and fire rockets over into our formations and uh, all sorts of tricks. But the thing that really worked best for them was when they started coming in from the front in waves of 10 to 20. And uh, it's, it's a scary thing to look up and see that many planes coming at you and the lights blinking, you know they're, they're firing at you. And what did you think of the uh, the B-17 from the first moment you went up in one to when you were engaged in battle and you had those, well, those Luftwaffe planes coming directly at you? How did you think the B-17 performed? Absolutely. I thought it was the finest airplane ever built. Uh, it took more punishment. And, and in one of my missions, I reported it uh, when I got back, uh, barely got back. There were over 600 holes in the plane, as I counted, and still flying. And uh, 600 holes in the plane. You've got to tell us about this this mission, Chuck. It sounds like the worst mission ever. Yeah, it was terrible mission. It was a mission to Munich. Munich is, uh, was a place where they were building jet engines for the ME-262 a jet plane. We'd never heard of a jet plane before, but there they were building them. And uh, they said it was most important that we shut down this plant. It's uh, MG plant. The uh, now the automobile MG, uh, not MG. Uh, BMW. BMW. Uh, BMW plant back then it was building these and we went in uh, about 27,500 feet and we'd already 
going through a, a terrible amount of... Are you familiar with Munich? I've been to Munich, yep. Well, you know that there's mountains all around it. Yeah, absolutely. As you're moving around, yeah. of course. Okay, they had, had these 88 aircraft, anti-aircraft guns in the mountains, all the way around the city. And then they had air, air, several airfields close by. And we went in at 27,500, and uh, we could hear the anti-aircraft uh, guns. Uh, are you familiar with the 88 millimeter gun? It would. I don't know how they did it, but they shot it. it shot it in groups of five. It was like it was in a clip. Uh, okay. It was, it was, and you could count them. You could count when you could hear the first one, and then count five times, and you knew how close they're getting to you. Uh, so we we heard them coming, and it finally hit us and knocked a hole in the inboard engine on the right hand side, number three engine, and hole the size of a bathtub. And then there's where we got a, a lot of uh, uh, holes in the plane. But then the fluid, the, the gasoline in that engine caught fire and we were on fire and couldn't, couldn't put it out uh, normal. So pilot decided he was going to try to dive the plane and blow the flames out and uh, told us to hook up so we wouldn't get thrown around. So down we went from 27,000 to 500 feet. 500 feet. I mean, that's a... That's a few seconds. That's a few seconds away from, well, we we know what, Chuck. Absolutely, and finally got pulled out. They were fought it and pulled it out, and uh, reported that number four engine was smoking on fire. Uh, that's uh, both engines now on the right hand side. Uh, the um, the pilots asked for permission to go to Switzerland, which was not too far away. Uh, and the command pilot came back and said, "Do not go to Switzerland. Bring that plane home." Do you How, understand? Whoa! What? <laughs> How far is that? We're we're talking hundreds and hundreds of miles. That's exactly right. And you you've got two engines out. You've gone in a steep dive, and you've got to make it back. And I I know where you are at this point because it's what they called the Canhuba line which was a defensive system of of fighter airfields radar tower installations flak searchlight batteries ground observers stretching all the way across switzerland the south of germany and denmark and you had to try and get out of that area that's exactly right and these flak towers and airfields and any aircraft uh, installations all along that thing and it was it was bad enough without uh, uh, fighter pilots trying to shoot you down but uh, pilot the two pilots pulled it out and they said they took uh, information from all places on the plane and um, decided that we were going to try to make it we'd have to get rid of some weight so we threw out everything that wasn't fastened down including parachutes which we had no need for you you got rid of your parachutes got rid of the parachutes got rid of the ball turret which hangs underneath uh there's three bolts that hold that uh, ball in there and we had to get the man out of the ball and then unscrew those bolts and drop drop it and um that gave us a, a big lift but uh we started back across Germany and then into France at Strasbourg. And how low were you flying at this point, Chuck? The treetop level. Treetop level. Yeah. Bloody hell. It was it was difficult to even go uh, get over uh, 
tall buildings or, or towers of any kind. And uh, You had a good pilot, Chuck. His name was Ray Strait, and uh, he was a little older than most of us, but uh, he was a great, great pilot. And as we would cross these little intersections, uh, rivers, uh, bridges, the guards that were there would grab a machine gun and fire at us as we went over, and, and you could see the splinters from the walkway inside the B-17 uh, flying in all directions. Um Fortunately, nobody was hit. However, the, I forgot to tell you that over the target, uh, the bombardier was uh, hit in the stomach with a 30 caliber, uh, 30 millimeter cannon. And uh, we debated whether it could have shoot on him and drop him out because we didn't think he would make it otherwise and let the Germans uh, doctor him. But they finally decided to take him home and, and he lived. But uh, that's, that's absolutely incredible. Hi, I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb. And in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from ballads to banqueting, from ghosts to gunpowder plots, from saints to sodomy. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So not only... Are you in this situation where your plane is in a critical condition, but you've also got your bombardier in a critical condition as well, and you've got to get them back? 
That's correct. Yes, yes. We uh, we uh, as we flew further and further across uh, France, uh, we were shot at by every everybody that had a gun. They, they could have uh, done real damage with a slingshot. Uh, it was that close. But uh, we got to Dunkirk, and the Germans brought out the 16-inch naval guns to shoot at us going across the channel. So uh, pilot asked me to send a mayday, which uh, I did, and uh, uh, we, they sent out a boat to meet us halfway, and we kept going and, and didn't think we were going to make it, but the third engine, number one engine, started smoking, and we lost power in, in the third engine. Here we are with one engine full power, and we had the cliffs of Dover to go over. So hang on, you're heading in across the channel with one engine, mayday released you've got people waiting in the channel just in case you have to ditch and now you're faced with the white cliffs of dover yes yes and uh, uh pilot said to the uh, engineer who's the top turret gunner uh we've got a red light we've got a red light uh the wheels won't go down so he he dropped out of his turret and, and went into the Bombay and there's a crank there that can crank the wheels down manually. And he was so tired turning that thing and and I got in and done my few licks and then he got back on it again. And finally, as we got right at Cliffs of Dover, there was a clunk and the uh, wheels went into position. And I dare say, James, we, we was inches or feet going over the cliffs of Dover and we landed landed at Manston, which you, you may or may not know is right on the coast. Uh, it's an emergency landing field. And we sat down on the beginning of the runway and coasted to a stop and they could not measure any fluid in the gas tanks. It had to be towed off off the uh, runway. There was no, no, no fuel left to fly in the you were you were headed in on vapors, weren't you? Yes. Did anyone in- inspect the plane afterwards? I mean, how does a plane with six hundred holes in at least, with one engine, vapors left in the tank? How does it get back? It was just a miracle, as far as I was concerned. That, uh, we um, we had a Boeing engineer inspect a plane, and he said. Very frankly, this plane it will not fly in this condition, but it did. It did, yeah. It did. And they put sent it to the graveyard. Uh, but I'll have you know that they were so in need of planes later that they dug it out, repaired all of the holes in it. Uh, they put little patches over aluminum patches over the holes, put new wings on them and gave it a new name and it flew again and was shot down uh, later after I left to come home. Wow, uh, that is remarkable, Chuck. That is truly a, a heroic, almost unbelievable mission flight across hundreds of miles. Like you say, it is it is a miracle. It's miracle-esque that you managed to get back. Yes, Absolutely. Now, when you finished that mission, you did 35 missions in total, right? Right, yes. Now, where were you based in the UK? I was based in Framlingham, and that's about 90 miles north of London, right on the channel. It's the closest base to the channel, about less than 10 miles. How far did you have to fly? Was it just shuttling back and forwards? from Framlingham over to bombardment in Germany, or did you have to go further afield? 
the shuttle mission to Russia, to Italy, and, and back to England was um, never publicized too much to the American people. But we we lost 93 planes on the ground in Russia because when we flew out of Framingham, crossed Germany, dropped our bombs, and went on, continued to Ukraine in Russia, and the Germans came back, followed us that night, dropped while we were on the ground, destroyed 93 planes. The American people were never told of that that. Uh, that loss is too great, I guess. But uh, we loaded up the men, thankfully, the men were saved on the planes that were left and flew to Italy, bombed, had a bomb mission in between and bombed a mission out of Italy and then went back to England. It was a, it was a very, very long trip and, and uh, there's a couple of funny stories in there. I would I'd love for you to be able to read those. Emily, could you read us uh, a section from the book that you helped write with Chuck? What stories stand out most for you from his service during the Second World War? When when he was in Dalhart, Texas, yeah. I think this is a good story about the night the lights went out. The night the, <laughs> the lights went out in Texas. It's a, it's a good start of a title. <laughs> uh we had been busy practice bombing on the bombing range about 50 miles northwest of Dalhart, and our bombardier, Lieutenant Vic Estes, had been tearing up the target. Flying at 20 to 30,000 feet, he was dropping his 100-pound practice bombs within a 100-foot circle. Practice bombs were 100 pounds of sand and white powder with a small explosive charge so we could see when they hit the ground. Everyone, including Vic, was amazed that he could be so accurate and consistent. But I knew how good he was because I had been practicing with him on the simulator. We were getting pretty cocky being one of the top crews in training. Then came night bombing. We were thinking this will be easy because the bombing range about 40 miles northwest of Dalhart was well lit and there was not a cloud in the sky. Ray took us into the IP initial point, which was the start of the bomb run. Ray called out, bomb bay door open, check it, Chuck. I opened the door from the radio compartment to the bomb bay and called back, bomb bay doors open. I closed the radio room door because the cold air was flooding in. It's all yours, Vic, said Ray, and Vic took over flying the plane using the bomb site. Bombs away, yelled Vic as he turned the plane back over to Ray. Ray said, check the bomb bay, Chuck. I opened the door and looked down at the ground, lit up like a Christmas tree. I reported all bombs away. Sandy Sanchez, the tail gunner, reported in. Man, we plastered that target. All the lights are out. A few minutes later, Dalhart Control Tower recalled all planes to the base as soon as possible. Ray came on the intercom and said, boys, we have a problem. Someone has bombed the little town of Perico, Texas, knocking out their power and water systems. We didn't believe it was us. There were a lot of other planes bombing tonight, 
We were never told who turned off the lights in Perico, Texas, but it took a lot of apologizing and money to fix it. There were no injuries. <laughs> the poor people of Perico, Texas, having their lights and water system knocked out, Chuck. I bet you weren't popular in the town that evening. There are some really funny stories lots of emotion in this book and because of the fact i think one of the reasons is because there's so much dialogue in the book uh i mean what was said amongst the crew uh all of those sayings and quotations and communication and the camaraderie and all of that from this crew that flew together all the time was just amazing to me well, thank you so much for working with Chuck Emily to, to get this book out and um, for all of us to, to read and to learn from. Chuck, what was life like living in England? Of course, you were so close to London as well. Did you take many trips over there? Have you ever been to the Wax Museum in London? Madame Tussauds, I have indeed, yes. Yes. You know, uh, if you go down, I don't know how many flights of stairs, you go down into the dungeon. Yes. We got caught down there in a bomb raid and all the lights out. And we're down there with all these people <laughs> that killed people, you know, years ago. Oh, my word. That that sounds like my worst nightmare, Chuck. I get, I get terrified at the London dungeons or any of those things. Because you never know when someone's going to move and jump out on you. How long were you stuck down there for? About, about 45 minutes. And this <laughs> young, young girl came down the stairs with a torch light as she called them it let us out one at a time but uh, but there's a jack the ripper and uh, all all the famous killers they look so real when you're standing right beside them you can't tell they're wax so you spent the bombing of london in a basement with jack the ripper yes <laughs> and I, I bet the young girl that came to rescue you wasn't scared <laughs> no he what was also in london we're in a cab and V2. A V2 hit. Took out a city block and uh, smashed the cab we were riding in. We got back, got out of there, got back on the train, went back to the base. <laughs> I don't blame you. How how close were you to the V2 strike? Uh, within, it took a block out. We were on, on the street. It came right up to the edge of the street where we were, uh, just, just a few blocks from the train station. We had just gotten off the train, got in a cab in this V2. Somehow the, the band it was driving the cab realized it was coming uh, i think it must have made some sort of noise i don't know so he pulled over and jumped underneath the instrument panel and we thought what what's the matter with him <laughs> and then we found out that everything blew up around us and they dug us out of there and they took us took us to this lady's uh, apartment about a block away and gave us some tea and sent us on the way. My word, you are a lucky man, aren't you, Chuck? You got in a few a few scrapes, to say the least. Yes, <laughs> not, not all of them were because of the war, but um, had a lot of experiences. And what was life like for you in England more generally? Were you, what was life like in, 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 in Norfolk, in Framlingham? We couldn't find enough to eat. I think that was a problem for most people during the war. Yeah. When we'd go out, had a few hours with, on a bicycle, we'd go uh, see if we could find some, some food. But uh, nobody had any food. It was a terrible time. 
And were you told of the extent to which Britain was going through hardship? Because it wasn't just London, was it? It was the rest of the country as well was being so heavily bombed throughout the war. Did you learn much of this? Or were you kept out of or kept away from the the realities of, of, of Britain's peril? We were kept away from it very, very much so. But occasionally we did, particularly when we'd get a bicycle, had had the day off, we would go ride in the countryside and, and um, talk to the ladies. There's no men around because they were all fighting. Of course. And, and um, uh, I just wished it was some way that I could have helped them, but they, they were dire straits. They didn't have enough to eat. And what, what they were growing, they were was selling to, to make a living. But um, I, I have the greatest respect for the English people for what they went through. Thousands of them were killed uh, in London. I was in London and watched a V1 coming down the street. Uh, it was about 400 feet high, and we were at uh, one, of the, one of the service men's clubs, and uh, we were just going in and saw it coming and mesmerized because it, then all of a sudden it's, the engine stopped and it nosed over and down it came. And that must have been about a mile away, but it was terrible. The, the rush of wind that came from that thing down the street was bad enough. Not counting where it landed, it did terrible destruction. And, and that was it, wasn't it? That was, that was the moment when the engine stops and all goes silent and you're just waiting for the explosion. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, Chuck, I could ask you questions all day and all night, but I'm going to give you the opportunity now to tell us where can people buy the book. Let me defer to you. Emily, tell us the details. All right. You can purchase the book at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, iTunes, Google Play, Anywhere and everywhere that you buy books. Everywhere, right. Uh, anywhere that you can order books. If it's a brick-and-mortar bookstore, they can order it for you, printed as well as digitally. So. And the title of the book is 35 Missions to Hell and Back, The Mighty 8th Air Force, 390th Bomb Group H History. That's correct. H, and the H stands for heavy. H stands for heavy. It's a great looking book. Well, Chuck, Emily, thank you so much for your time. And Chuck, you said you wish that there was something you could have done for the British people to help them in their plight. Believe me, and I'm sure that all of our listeners will uh, join me in saying you did most certainly more than your duty to help the British people and the Allies during the Second World War. Thank you so much for your time and for telling us your history. Thank you for inviting us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.